to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swiven Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Todd Lewis to discuss, is wealth inequality a problem? The reason I asked Todd on uh, for this is because uh, Todd actually has an argument against wealth inequality, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but in my experience, those people who say that they are against wealth inequality or income inequality aren't actually against wealth or income inequality. Um, so, for instance, my brother uh, was talking to one of his friends. He went on holiday within uh, somewhere and he got drawn down, you know, you know are you really against inequality. Um, and really what he ended up saying was, well, no, he wasn't really against inequality. per se. he just thought that there were certain people in society whose material standard of living was below an acceptable minimum. And those we kind of wanted to get rid of that and those people up to uh, an acceptable living standard. Um, and in general, I think that tends to be the case. The people who go on about wealth inequality or income inequality, they're not particularly concerned, it doesn't seem to me, about the actual disparities. It's just that they think there are some people who don't earn as much as they otherwise should. Um, uh, that said, Nassim Taylor argues that the only people who care about income inequality are the upper middle class, because they have everything apart from being at the top of society and therefore complain when the people above them are even further above them. Um, but that seems to be just the envy rather than any more sort of interesting sort of um, idea of political science or political economy. So I thought it'd be interesting to discuss the issues of wealth inequality uh, per se. So, Todd, um, why is wealth inequality a problem? Or more precisely, why is excessive wealth inequality a problem in your view? Right. So... The, the argument that I'll be mostly using is derived from uh, Aristotle's The Politics. Now, he makes the distinction that a commonwealth can be divided amongst essentially three classes, the rich, the middle class, and the poor. And he argues that the middle class is the ideal constitutive, constitutive element of the city-state because it is the element that is both rational – uh, of course, the poor, he would say, are not rational. The rich, of course, are also well-educated and rational, but not given to excessive leisure because they have their own affairs to take care of. Whereas the rich, because they have a lot of leisure, in this case due to wealth, and the poor, because they have a lot of leisure, in this case due to poverty and lack of employment, uh, come to quarreling with each other. He says that ideally the middle class should either be uh, larger than the two together, or at least larger than any one of them singly. Because what ends up happening is if you if you have too much leisure time uh, and you're not able to use it, now, again, Aristotle views leisure as a good thing. I mean, it's a precondition for philosophy. But the poor, because they lack education, are not really able to engage in philosophy, and so therefore leisure is not useful for them. And the rich, because he believes that they are, they breed a sense of entitlement, and indigence and pride and arrogance because of their position while they have the capabilities and potential to practice philosophy choose not to and so when you have a limited amount of leisure time based on one's ability to maintain one's daily affairs which takes up a large part of your time it creates stability within the, within the commonwealth because your 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 life is working out you're making uh, economic and social actions and activities throughout you know your life and you don't have to worry too much about these other things he also mentions that in times of invasion or, or plague or famine 
the poor will die because they don't have enough food and they'll starve. And the rich will become targets. And the middle class are most qualified to survive that. So the reason why wealth inequality is bad is essentially twofold. One, it creates two hostile classes. Because if the poor outnumber the rich, then the rich put in a dictatorship or an oligarchy to protect their position because the poor would theoretically... Sorry, if the poor are the majority, they become a democracy and then vote the wealth to them, which leads to civil war. And if the wealthy can forestall that and create a dictatorship and oligarchy, then it leads to, again, civil war because the poor are like, well, you're not giving us what we need for our own sustenance, whereas the middle class is in this happy middle balance and is able to arbitrate between the two. So... Well, income inequality is dangerous for the city or the polis because it leads to civil war. Under that view, who who does Aristotle or would you class as the middle class? Is this just arithmetically in the middle of uh, income earnings within the the polis, mm-hmm. or is it? Or does it have a more substantive definition, or is it just sort of context dependent based on uh, their sort of uh, material? Um, the material incomes that they have. Well, I think a good way to contextualize this is the the, the debate that goes on between uh, property rights use and ownership between, say, anarcho-capitalists on one hand and more traditional anarchists like mutualists and syndicalists on the other hand, specifically revolving around the uh, the use principle, right? So what makes the middle class, say, different than the rich is the rich own lots of property that they don't actually use or work, at least not directly. And that then gives them the potential for uh, an abundance of leisure. So that would be more consistent with an anarcho-capitalist theoretical position, whereas the middle class is more uh, use-based. They have some property, sufficient because right in ancient Greece, you had to have a sufficient amount of property in order to meet the quota for the hoplite war soldiers so you had to be able to equip yourself which it meant you had to have a certain level of income independence based on the property that you owned such that you could meet the minimum demands of the city-state so the middle class is a are what we might call small landowners and it's sort of you could sort of see this as what Locke is getting at when he talks about the Lockean proviso because he doesn't want one landowner or one set of landowners to just own everything and turn everybody into what we call proletariat class. So the middle class is primarily based on property ownership, but it's a widely distributed property ownership. So in under so given that definition then in principle you could just have a society, do you understand me correctly, that is just middle class, effectively. Whilst practically not possible, but theoretically given the concept that you're using of the middle class, that that would be in principle possible. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Would you say that there is, it would always lead to civil war? I mean, Aristotle's argument on, uh, say, um, leisure time, uh, I, I can see for the rich, but certainly for a decent section of the poor. I mean, I mean today the welfare uh, class will clearly have a lot of leisure, but otherwise the poor working class would seem not to have much leisure time at all. Well, I, I haven't got any particular figures on that, but I mean, it certainly wouldn't seem to be hugely uh, excessive. So how, why would, I can see why the rich have the leisure time, but I don't see why there'd be such a large proportion of the poor that would have that leisure time such that they could then sort of gang up with the um 
the, the rich relative to the middle class, unless I'm well, misunderstanding something. Yeah, well, this this kind of gets it's kind of an employment problem. So to to fast forward in history, uh, one of the things that led to the civil unrest in Rome in the Republic was many of the demobilized soldiers had no means of employment because when they returned home, uh, the the rich who had made money on the wars of conquest had then bought up their farms and then employed slaves. And so now these people are essentially the proletariat and have nowhere to work and nothing to do, but they're also trained soldiers. So you you end up having this idle class that can develop. So essentially then it doesn't – okay, so, but that seems to me then not an argument necessarily against wealth inequality but against unemployment. Well, yes, but the, the other angle of the inequality is that it creates a revolutionary spirit amongst the poor. They see that – you know, a handful of people are making all of the gains and benefits from their labor, which is, again, what feeds into the potential for civil war. Does that feed into slave revolts particularly? Because I don't know historically, do they particularly take place more when their owners uh, are earning significantly more than everybody than they had done historically? I, I'm not I'm not au fait with the history of slave revolts. I just wondered there because obviously... Um, what's interesting about this with Aristotle is Aristotle accepts slavery, and I was, I was interested to see how if you if you how we sort of relate sort of like the um, the slave class into this analysis, because it seems to be the poor you're referring to are the lowest citizens rather than slaves. Exactly. Yeah, these are the lowest citizens, and they're not slaves. But but would. But would, on Aristotle's view, then having a large slave class be a potential problem? Because, well, in a way, that's odd because they're one and the same as the upper class, because they kind of they're owned by them. Um, so I, I was wondering how slavery and the wealth inequality vis-a-vis -vis slaves comes into this. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure what Aristotle would say. I think that we do see lots of historical examples of slave revolts. That are the result. I don't know if I'd say directly related to uh, inequality, but more to the the cruel treatment. Think of like you know the Spartacus revolt against Rome, or the the mercenary revolt against Carthage. So that that would be a different. But yes, properly properly defined, properly circumscribed. This argument that Aristotle is making is only for citizens. I'll ask you a question with respect to the elites or the upper class. Uh, now, this might be more of the case with second or third generation. This applies both to monarchies and, you know, ubermensch businessmen types. Um, they they work a heck of a lot of hours. I mean, Jeff Bezos probably does work more hours than his pickers. Now, it might not be manual labor, but it's diplomacy. It's uh, going to meetings and things like that. Uh, and the same way with, you know, a lot of the sort of key monarchs in European History, uh, you know, the ones that everyone reads about the, that the, they were quite busy and the slaveholders in like the American South were also quite busy and learned. So it, it is, seems that they are in doing labor here. And as Thaddeus Russell would make the argument that the lower classes, the ones at the really bottom, um, in a sense, have no responsibility, uh, 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 which is this is he has, that's how we get the sort of popular culture out of there but as far as the upper the, the top wouldn't you argue they work quite a lot 
Um, now you, you don't have to go full line Rand and say they deserve every penny they 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 they're worth, and I sort of agree in a sense with some of the left libertarians who make these arguments, but they do work a lot and they do have things. I mean, I, I would think you would you would agree with that, Todd. Well, yeah, but I mean, this this just gets to the question: How do we quantify the value of the labor and the time spent? Because if we look at say the the the, the difference between the lowest the lowest earner in a company in the highest earner, and then the CEO say like in 1960 was like 40 times more. Now it's like 400 times more. I mean, are they really working any harder now than the CEO in 1950? No, I would not say they're working any harder than now, but I would, I, I would push back against the, um, um, the idea that they're doing no work. Uh, 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 you know, the, I, they're they're doing the sort of the work of management, so to speak, which is, uh, you know, sometimes people like Ben Burgess, it, it, it's not entirely clear if if the workers are valuable because they labor or are they valuable because they do a task. And if they do it a task based on compulsion, the system of compulsion is only in place thanks to the management, which is the upper class, which keeps the and that that's that definitely applies to the slave system in in Rome. Again, I don't know much about it at all. I do know some things about the American South system, um, which, but you know, it sort of requires a sort of people there to sort of own the capital stock in the Hoppian terms here to boss everyone around here. And again, today it's more of a therapeutic system, but still, it, it nonetheless is a management system. They do do quote unquote work, so to speak. It's not self-directed uh, mutualist communities. Would you agree? Well, yeah, well, so, so here we need to make a distinction between the work to produce a good or service and the work to manage a workforce. So obviously a taskmaster is doing something. He's managing other people. Uh, and now, obviously, with the exception of, you know, certain corporate environments, the libertarians would object to most historical manifestations of that, the slaveholder, the feudal lord. As, as, you know, unjust and violating rights. Now, where they differ from the left libertarians or the anarchists and socialists is whether the CEO of a modern company is in any way analogous. But the, the point is, the wealth that is being given, see, the increase in productivity between 1950 and now is not the result of the CEOs working harder, it's the result of capital accumulation. And so the question is, why why couldn't we have just kept the the 40 times more all the way through where we wouldn't have had such an imbalance today because people act like the Jordan Peterson will say well it's, they produced all this more because they worked harder no this is because of capital accumulation and more effective modes of production that's why they don't work any harder than a CEO in 1950 and in fact i would argue that many of the companies that exist now i mean obviously not tech companies but that were founded, you know, in the, the boom after World War II, many of those men were far more intelligent and talented than their successors, who just seemed to be rather lackluster and lame, and yet they're getting paid way, way more than the founder of these companies, like, say, you know, GE or something. And it's like, well, that's not in any way commensurate with how much the original CEOs were getting paid, who did a lot more of the hard work and, and the heavy lifting. 
I think this gets us on to uh, the next question I was going to ask, which was the um, what do you think the major cause of wealth inequality is? But just to respond briefly to uh, whether CEOs work harder or not, uh, Tyler Cowen made a defense of uh, CEOs um, earning uh, a lot more than they did historically. Now, uh, that's which, is, which basically is due to the fact that corporations are larger. Uh, and so the uh, the CEO is more valuable than they would be in a relatively smaller firm. So whether or not higher level of concentration size of firm is a good thing or not is another question. Um, but that would at least be the main sort of explanation, at least of Tyler Cowan offered. Um, um, also, I think whilst it is true that some get paid now more than do even their founders, uh, in real terms, I remember seeing an argument that actually uh, John D. Rockefeller was still the richest man American ever to have lived. Uh, now, obviously, he's an outlier because he was astounding in everything that he did. Um, so that might be slightly different. But um, I remember reading in real terms that was that was the case. But back to the sort of original question, then, is um, obviously you, you cited at least with the income has uh, changed significantly uh, with the relationship with CEO and the average workforce. Uh, since 1950. Uh, So what would you cite then as the major causes of uh, wealth and income inequality uh, in a a, a general sense and then maybe in a more specific historical sense, say, since the post-Second World War period? Right, right. So generally speaking, wealth inequality seems to derive from the capital accumulation of some over others. So let's look at you know, antiquity with the large, uh, you know, latifundias of Rome, right? The actual ownership of these states, which grew at the expense of the small farmholders during the Punic Wars and the wars against the Greeks, where basically because men were on 20 year deployments, they never got home to farm the land and their wives weren't able to do it. So they sold it off to the patricians who then consolidated them into latifundias and then put uh, slaves to work them. They then ended up controlling the substrata necessary for economic activity, which created a proletariat class, which then led to the fall of the republic. So it's, it's as you accumulate the capital stock at the, expe- at the expense of everyone else. Because if you look at Rome, it's a classic example of the patricians buying up for pennies on the dollar all, all of the property that was available to them, staffing it with slaves, and then leaving the men who went to fight Rome's wars holding the bag. Uh, so that's one. And then for today, it's because improved production efficiency of the capital stock has been retroactively uh, stated as not the real uh, reason for the success, but somehow some imaginary improved leadership skills of the people we have today. So the people we have today in leadership positions claim responsibility for the improved productivity, which is an actual fact, the result of improved uh, production methods and improved technologies. And in fact, if you look at the track record of a lot of these CEOs, they're not nearly as competent as the founders of the companies they're leading now. So they're clearly not leading better or more efficiently. So to if I get your your position correctly, you, you seem to be making... I suppose you could argue something like a Georgist position, but actually being able to sort of the accumulation of land uh, and the relation to that sort of the, um, as it were, the, the means of production. And uh, then whilst you're able to sort of amass this at the expense of everybody else, this is the 
sort of cause of the wealth inequality. Is that am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, that's largely correct. Wouldn't it be the case, though, in the case of the, the partitions in Rome, um, wasn't that just mostly due to the, um, the the fact that Rome was fighting wars more than anything else? I mean, if the Romans had the same sort of economic system to begin with, but all the uh, citizens weren't going out and fighting, um, that, and of course were de-citizenized as well, uh, because if you'd had a situation whereby you didn't have to be a landowner to be a citizen, um, then the sort of political problems may not have been as acute. Um, but doesn't that seem to be more of a contingent historical uh, fact of the Romans' the political system and also the fact that the Romans were fighting loads of wars? I mean, if they hadn't have done, then would the uh, the way in which the original appropriation of the land that had taken place, would that not have been as much of a problem? So, for instance, if they weren't going off fighting and the Britishers wanted to buy the land from them, they would have been able to buy it from them at a, you know, a, a normal market rate rather than a lot lower. And, and, and in that case, even if the um, Britishers have amassed greater land holdings, would you sell that still would have created a problem uh, or would it have not been as big of a problem as it had been or, or something else? Right. So, I mean, certainly the ease with which they were able to consolidate their land holdings was due to the contingent historical fact of war. Uh, obviously, in England, with the closing of the commons by the aristocracy over you know centuries in England, that wasn't necessarily done during wartime, though these were the, essentially the ruling class heirs of the Normans expropriating, you might say, the Saxon people. So th- there's there's a difference. So, yes, it. If they didn't have to buy, if they had to buy full market price from the from the plebeians, uh, it would have taken longer. But I'm not sure that it would it wouldn't have happened because the other way that you do it is you get all these people indebted, and then they default, and then you just scoop it up. I mean that seems to be what BlackRock's strategy is right now. So would then so would it then be fair to say that the autism seems to be uh, like um, land ownership itself? And that um, maybe more a use-based uh, system, or more of a um, an approach, say that the Georgists would have, say, uh, to land ownership, would um, have significantly mitigated uh, the the wealth inequality here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we could look at uh, the other great Republican tradition example of Switzerland, right? Contradistinction to Rome. Machiavelli makes the distinction that republics that expand and conquer eventually become autocracies, whereas republics that are happy in their own confines can maintain the institutions for a very long time. And, And arguably, Switzerland has maintained it for a very long time. And so, you know, it's it's not it's not clear that the quote unquote freeholdership has completely disappeared. And if we look at the Anglo-Saxon tradition of, of, of ideal land distribution, it is a kind of freeholdership, in part inspired by traditional Germanic norms and in part inspired by the Bible and in part inspired by ancient Greeks and Romans. Now, I guess you could say the other way to acquire um, this kind of inequality is the result of, to use a video game analogy, building tall. Right. Once you actually have um, 
modern banking in the 16th century and then industrial production in the 19th, you you can, with a, a, a comparatively smaller piece of land, generate far more wealth than anybody else around you and then use that to exert your will on the society. Going to the sort of post-war period onwards, you cited that the um, income and wealth inequality has, exacerbated, has gone significantly greater since, say, the 1950s. Um, what do you think is the major cause of that uh, more than anything else? Well, I, I think there's there's probably a, there's a few causes. I mean, one is the idea that the the quote unquote elites in this category have convinced a lot of people that the increasing productivity is due primarily to their leadership and insights. And so a lot of large portion of the American population thinks that, well, they just they just earned it. And rather than looking at the improved productivity of the factories or or other develop you know other production processes. Uh another one would be, you know, you could argue the weakening of unions because with collective bargaining going away, it's you might want to fight the issue, but there's not much you can do about it. And then I guess thirdly I'd add also the fact that you know every everything is so you know d- diverse within the workspace which is was a precondition for causing the failure of unions, it's difficult for people to even agree with each other on what the problem is. And then I guess also fourthly, we don't we don't have a because of diversity of thought and culture, we don't have a common concept of what is an equitable remuneration for service rendered. Uh, it was a lot easier to come up with something like that in 1950 than it is in 2022. As far as the point about the CEOs convincing everyone, I do think wealth inequality is a problem. I, I want to start with that. I do think it's a problem. Um, but I, um, you know, you had a debate with Ken's uh, Socialist Innovate. And one of the interesting facts about the CEOs like the 1950s, post 70s period, we'll say, is that many American businesses were somewhat uncompetitive compared to foreign manufacturers or had outright arcane uh, uh, agreements. Take an example of Bethlehem Steel. In order to change the light bulb, you needed all these. You need to have like three supervisors. Whether that's entirely a legend or not is a good question. If you go back a little further, the Pittsburgh rail strike, one of the largest rail strikes. One of the key things. Now it was, to be precise, the history. It was over the distribution between profits to shareholders and workers. But one of the things was causing it was they're going to doublehead, which would cut. The, the number of engineers and conductors and firemen down. Um, so like, you know, getting rid of firemen and strip mining, for example, strip mining is probably a better form of safer. It's actually better for the environment in a certain bizarre sense. You can just fill it in, but strip mining does not work. Strip mining with a super digger is not that doesn't require a hundred thousand labor force. It requires 20 guys and maybe 50 technicians to keep the equipment running. Um, so maybe the CEOs are responsible for creating this, giant bounty of of wealth here i mean i think the truck driving thing is going to be a thing going forward is you know the computers can drive trucks uh already uh probably it depends airplanes can probably definitely be flown the u.s air force has been doing it since the 1960s had fully automated planes um you know uh they don't uh so so maybe the ceos are the ones that that are brutalist will go out and just sort of fire all the uh fire all the workers, so to speak. And actually 
if you go back to the American system of slavery, um, the Jefferson types thought it would go away because of the economics, but they actually found a good use for their labor in cotton production, which was uh, uh, made uh, by the which was was effective large scale use for these sort of coarse labor here. So there seems to be there seems to be a sort of efficiency method where just abolishing uh, labor and replacing machines. Well, that is a kind of capital. And it is quite useful. Now, the Ben Burgess play will just have a universal basic income or something like that. Um, I think that's the response to be given there. Um, but you do need someone to sort of have a fire sale against the firms. Because once the laborers, the steel workers have a nice middle class job, but if Japanese steel firms are using more advanced technology in the 1970s because they got burned down, um, now the American steel company can't compete. They could do, you could go, you could have like tariffs or things like that, but you do need something to, to make up. And at the end of the day, the U.S. Navy does need ships and they probably want to build them with the most advanced techniques. That would be my response. What would you make? Indefensive CEOs? Um, uh, again, I do think it's a problem. I do think wealth inequality is a problem, but, uh, the, the solutions, how we got certain things seems to be at least an issue with that. Right. So, Okay, so the the point the point here is, if I understand you correctly, that at a certain point there's going to have to be a decision made for or against any given method of production or technology or whatever, and and the CEO is the guy that makes that decision. Now, okay, yeah, but but he didn't invent the technology that is possible or the production method. Usually not, but sometimes he is. Um, in which case, that person, whoever invented that technology or patented it or whoever invented that production method, would be the one really responsible. Nobody thinks just because you rubber stamped or rammed through something in Congress means that you're responsible for the actual uh, program, the people that are responsible for the program and the people that created it. And even if we accept that uh, rubric, again, just, just time and again, especially where I live, the people who are running like third or fourth generation businesses – they're they're just completely incompetent. Like they, especially compared to the people that started the, these businesses, you know, maybe seventy, eighty, a hundred years ago. And it's like they're only here because they inherited it from their 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 parents, and they're they're just gutting and 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 salvaging off what they have because it's cheaper to sell inferior products uh, and and then get revenue that way than maintaining whatever vision they're great-grandparents or grandparents might have had. That seems to be a separate point. That seems to be an inheritance position rather than the CEO being useless, uh, per se. Uh, I think make, uh, framing it in a situation whereby well, the CEO just represents what they do. I mean, let's suppose it's just a, an owner of a firm as opposed to a CEO. Let's suppose you bought it. Let's just, let's just say that's the case. I mean, so the Rothbardian defense of the owner in that case would be the case that, well, Okay, let's say you've got an R&D department and they're developing stuff. Most of the stuff they develop is rubbish and no use. But the thing is, the owner is fronting the resources to the R&D department providing a, uh, an environment in which those innovations can take place. And then once, you know, they actually come up with something useful they can use, well, then, you know, this is going to help um, uh, the company as a whole. But the thing is, the owner has actually provided a framework in which innovation can take place. Uh, otherwise, this guy wouldn't be able to spend all the time tinkering in the R&D department. He'd have to be going, like, you know, uh, picking litter 
or uh, working in a factory, like putting uh, lights on cars or something, because um, no one's be fronting him money to do it. I mean, that's at least be the, the general Rothbardian defense. Right, right. So, so two points. First, um, I, I bring up the anecdotal evidence, not to say that, to say that this, that the people who are running the businesses now are getting prepaid a proportionally, proportionally higher amount than the people who founded them. And they're not working harder. They're not adding more value than the founders of these firms. That's what I'm, that's how it circles back to that. Now, as far as the Rothbard's position, the, pro- the problem here, though, is most modern-day corporations are limited liability corporations where the CEO isn't actually liable for what he does. Now, Rothbard would agree that that's a problem, and what Rothbard is describing is an idealized form of the partnership corporation, something like you might see like in the Christmas Carol, Scrooge and Marley, where both are liable directly. But we don't have that anymore. And so this is why I get confusing with libertarians. They'll describe a kind of ideal that they want to have, which they fully admit doesn't exist yet, and then they'll say, oh, but that totally describes Bill Gates. That totally describes Elon Musk. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. And in another context, they would agree with me. I would say, well, you could not, you could certainly make that case with, uh, with Rothbard and the idealized position, but it would still be the case that somebody's fronting the R&D department money, that otherwise uh, they wouldn't be able to exist and and uh, use the the company's resources to try and come up with some new ideas, unless somebody was fronting the money. Now, as to who we identify them ex- exactly as, is um, is not obvious. And I know I know take your point on limited liability corporations. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not going to say that, but um, there is going to be somebody who is or, or some organisation that is providing the framework. It's it's not just the the R and D department can not just sort of like work stuff out themselves uh, uh, without any funds, and so funds are going to come from somewhere. Well, right, right, but the the question then is, are we really saying that uh, the person who's coming up with the funds is the CEO or or someone else? Now, obviously, the funds, of course, are the accumulated assets of the corporation, which are in some sense, derived from the shareholders that are putting money into it. But the issue is, again, with with the gap growing larger and larger between those that are having all the resources. So so there's there's a the argument sort of is like this, right, because on the one hand, we hear the statement that, you know, perception or or, uh, you know, sense of something is in some sense more important than the reality of it, at least when it comes to political decisions. So even if, you know, one could construct this more more libertarian argument there are lots of people that don't buy into it and and so using historical examples someone like bismarck was able to take the wind out of the sails of the communists by bringing out you know essentially a social security system which you know stabilized germany and from the fears of a communist revolution because He's, he, it wasn't necessarily because he, he agreed in some sort of abstracted, rational sense. But he was like, look, if we don't do this and, you know, give a more moderate offering to this group, then we're going to have a revolution on our hands. Russia didn't do that, and they had two revolutions in 1917. So there is still the fact of the matter that as this gap widens, uh, the one or the other side is far more likely to resort to violence. 
Oh no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, um, my point here was merely just to, to say that the uh, CEO and the, the sort of the well, to what, if you want to call the CEO an entrepreneur or not, is another question. Uh, do I, I think do provide some form of value? I mean, when it comes to sort of the increased wealth inequality from nineteen sort of fifties onwards, I mean, particularly from nineteen seventies onwards, um, I would. Uh, you, you you probably expect me to to go down this line. Um, the obvious thing is 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 the monetary system. Uh, any link to gold is gone. You get the complete financialization of uh, society, and basically instead of the financial uh, markets creating funds for the real economy to make stuff, they basically just make money for the sake of making money. Um, and there's a massive growth in like regulations. Uh, and the opportunity, you know, the opportunity for people to actually be independent um, producers and um, be self-employed where that is a lot lower than it otherwise would because they just can't be profitable in doing uh, licensing requirements, giving, given regulation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that's that's at least from sort of like the nineteen sort of fifties um, onwards uh, is what I would do. Although what I would say is though I still think even in sort of um, Ankapistan of varying varieties um, that there would still probably be uh, most people probably want to work for somebody rather than working for themselves, uh, just because uh, they would rather have a, a stable um, income stream than. Um, um, uh, be an entrepreneur and having variable incomes. Right. So I wouldn't necessarily discount, you know, monetary theory and inflation and, and all of this. But what I think is sort of uh, one one elephant in the room, I guess, that we're dancing around is uh, wealth inequality is the result of legal privileges. These corporations and CEOs can do things that normal people can't do. Now, and in fact, Rothbard himself argued that by removing said legal privileges, there would be less wealth and equality in a truly libertarian society, and that sort of had a spin-off in C4SS. So that's a that's a possibility, but but then that, that would actually mean that Rothbard, in some sense, you know, agrees with the problem of wealth and equality, where what he would disagree with is how to fix it. And as far as Rothbard goes by identifying it to privileges that some groups have that others don't, Certain economic actors have that other economic actors don't. I would agree. On the position within libertarians, I think there's three views, which is wealth inequality is good, which is sort of the Ayn Rand mold bug. Sort of, it's sort of what the left thinks most libertarians have. The wealth inequality is neutral. People like Tyler Cowen, Reason Magazine, and wealth inequality is bad. Of course, Kevin Carson, C4S, even I'd argue Sean Gabb, Swithin at times does this too. Um, somewhat, believe it or not, some of the paleo libertarians. So those are the sort of three. I think there's like three positions there in there, and it's, it's somewhat dependent on what what you think. Um, you know, people would look like if there was no state, or if there was the ideal state out there. Uh, I, 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 I'm probably sympathetic to all three camps. I'll give that. I'll give that view. So rather than go through there too much, I'll say why not just have a classless society and just go full. You know, well. We'll go full Ben Burgess Mark interpretation of Marx here. And again, but again, things get slimy here when you deal with the other side, you know, the far left, which in, the left, which also includes the left libertarians at times. There's sort of a, you know, cross pollination there. Um, um, 
Now, people like that are fine with chess inequality, for example. Like, you know, they don't have a problem with a guy, grandmaster in chess, and a guy who, who spend a lot of time and can't play. So, so they they have okay with sports inequality. They're okay with other things. Um, those kind of equality here. Now, I would just say, well, it seems like other talents and skills would have the same, you know, bricklayers. It would seem like that would that would that would that would go that way as well. It would seem like the same reason suggests there's, you know, you give a hundred people ch- ch- chess game, they have a hundred, you know, uh, some sort of curve, whether it's a bell curve or barbell curve, is all a good question here. So the argument against the classless slide, it seems like it seems like it's quote unquote unnatural. Um, you know, you know, uh, it, that that's that that would be my view. So, so, and if you try to sort of force everyone to be natural into this, that that poses they get the handicap general problem here. Now, I do agree with Rothbard that it is funny that Rothbard has the sort of left wing teal to him in the sense that. You know, his view is that he actually, in a Capistan, would actually be much more egalitarian place. And I actually would probably agree um, up to a point, although it leaves out the underclasses here, um, the people who do not want to work, um, uh, the people who have no interest in working. Uh, you could almost argue that the underclasses are better off under a coercion system because then they're forced to work and they have no choice. Um, um, so so I, I don't really see – I don't. My my question to you would be, why not just abolish the whole class system here? Now, the obvious answer for Aristotle would be, you know, there's natural slaves and there's you know, different degrees here. Um, would you go that far? What would you make of the sort of, you know, you know, the talent dispersion? Now, of course, you know, look, I don't think Warren Buffett would be – if Warren Buffett was born on every side, he might be a gangster. He might be a doctor. But I don't think he'd be at the bottom – of a social hierarchy, um, unless, of course, he'd be like a failed person. If you look at most elites there, now again, fourth generation maybe, but that's just an inheritance problem. That's that's true for everything, I would say. You know, the children of R.C. Sproul are, end up on like uh, some uh, dating website that you hookups for whatever. Uh, so I, I think that's true almost all, all, all views. But why not just abolish the whole? Forget trying to hit the goldy golden middle. Just go classless. Well, I think I think the 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 best argument against the classless society is it's so ill defined by those who propose it that no one even really knows what you're articulating. So when you have something like say the the um, Federalist Papers in the U.S. constitutional process. The kind of political state that the uh, Federalists were attempting to construct was one that could at least be conceived of and implemented. It doesn't have to mean you agree with it, but it's there's there's contours to it. It's understandable to the intellect. And then you can say, OK, it, it could look like this if we do this and build it. There's nothing like that with with classless society. It's completely incohate. So. It's almost like you don't even know what you're committing to. And I think another point, okay, so, so summing, some inequalities over others. Well, for what the left would say, I think on this point, and I think also on this point, I'm inclined to agree, is that 
the, the, the one of the most obvious dangers of a wealth inequality is that someone who's fabulously wealthy could just hire an army of mercenaries and this subvert the constitution and take over, which is exactly what happened in Rome. Todd, Todd, yeah. could you just um, repeat what you said? You just glitched out for a second. Oh, sorry, yeah, recording. yeah. Good. So what I'll say is as to why uh, some inequalities are considered okay by the left and others not okay, I would say is this, is that with wealth, we attribute this value as a universal medium of exchange. So if you're good at, say, chess, or you're good at, say, baking, or you're good at, say, something else, you being good at that doesn't break the game that everybody else is playing because you can't leverage that to then take over. If you have a ton of wealth, you could just hire a bunch of mercenaries, take over the country, and subvert the Constitution, which is exactly what happened in Rome when Caesar took over the Republic. And so that kind of inequality, now he, he took that by conquest, but one could easily envision somebody doing that by, uh, you know, commercial enterprise and then hiring the mercenaries afterwards, totally breaks the system. The system just becomes totally broken and subverted, whereas somebody who's good at chess or baking or music doesn't break the system in that way and isn't a potential existential threat to the Commonwealth. But they would be if they amassed lots of wealth because of their ability. Yes, but that's but that's often not how in the last in the modern age how that happens. Most people who are extremely talented in those ways never seem to make the kinds of money that people involved in you know finance, banking, a business are able to do. Now, one might say, well, that's because of legal privileges. Possibly so. I guess one could envision a form of government where legal privilege was given to chess players, and then they took over. But that's something that we don't really see. It doesn't seem very plausible. So this then brings the question is how uh, to reduce wealth inequality or to, or to what extent we should uh, reduce it. Um, so let's suppose um, we go full rough body and we get rid of legal privilege and um, we create Ankapistan. Uh, what, in your view, if any, would would um, wealth would a wealth inequality be a problem? under sort of Rothbard in Ankapistan, um, what additional sort of um, sort of policies or sort of legal uh, differences would you need to prevent wealth inequality from likely spiraling out of control? Now, obviously, you can probably you can break any system, but in sort of like a general sort of probabilistic uh, fashion, uh, what would you require over and above sort of um, Rothbard in Ankapistan to um reduce wealth inequality to sort of like an acceptable level in your view? Well, I think I think there's two possible uh, vectors of, of subversion here. One is a lot of libertarians, though by no means all, are opposed to the Lockean proviso, right? Because the, the Lockean proviso implies a kind of freeholder mentality because he's specifically concerned that Somebody doesn't just homestead all the land at once and like, well, I'm king now, tough noogies, um, and then takes over because he seems to have this intuition that, well, that would lead to a civil war. That would lead to a revolution or a tyranny. And a lot of libertarians, are like for, for purely abstract intellectual reasons, don't like the idea and would, would not want to have it. But I think something like the Lockean Proviso, possibly modified, would be necessary. And I think the other thing that would be a concern would be how you deal with interest and usury because it's quite po- it's quite easy to conceive of a situation in which you get, you get people to uh, 
Well, I mean, Rothbard ought to know because he was the one that sort of popularized discourse on voluntary servitude by Etienne Boti amongst right libertarians. You, you might get people uh, addicted to purchasing, consuming idle pleasures and fancies that get them into debt such that they default and where their creditors then take over and consolidate all the property into one area. Both of those, I don't think, are com- are completely un- impossible and could be quite serious threats within Encapistan, and those would have to be addressed, I think. How would you address them? Well, with regards to the, the last one I mentioned, uh, you, you would have to either, well, of course, in a libertarian society, you're not going to, well, this is where it gets tricky, right? You're, I was going to say you're not going to outlaw usury, but one could imagine a hobby and covenant community which is Islamic, which does outlaw usury, in which case, problem solved. Uh, or, or if you don't go that far, you could just have a society where there's not compounding interest and there's a certain cap. I think Calvin had like a certain cap to how much interest you could charge. In which case, it wouldn't just become this galloping Gertie that runs away. So either, either doing away with it entirely in a kind of like, you know, say, Islamic or traditional Catholic copy and covenant community, or you could do it with, you know, some sort of hard cap on how much you would you would uh, issue now now also if you, if you go back to the libertarian like gold principle you could say well you know because the money supply is going to be relatively fixed because it's pegged to precious metals you're not going to see that galloping gertie effect or at least it's going to be limited which may or may not be true and then on the on the other point of the Lockean proviso I, I just think that would just be the law of the land or some modified version of it so which would then imply a kind of use ownership, right? Because because the implied assumption of the Lockean proviso is that if you if you homestead more land than you can actually use, that's a problem. So essentially, you're going to something like occupation in use and um, opposition to interest. Um, what is your objection? To, would you distinguish between usury and interest? And uh, what is, in your view? actually wrong about usury right um i wouldn't uh i know there are some people that do what what is fundamentally well there's a couple ways you can go about it but let's start from first principles uh usury basically is just this this ability to, to subvert any system and break any game because whatever social norms you have set up uh, once you get people to be indebted to you, to quote from Proverbs, the debtor is slave to the lender, you basically enslaved the population that is in debt. And if you create a system that maximizes the production of and necessity for uh, user, usurious exchanges, to the extent that you have that, you have an enslaved population, which... I think is going to lead to all sorts of problems down the road, and certainly libertarians would not want to have an enslaved population. That seems to be a case against interest per se, but but, but how is how is um, interest and requiring interest of somebody um, making them your slave in a way that charging them to borrow your car isn't slavery? Well, let's put it this way, right? Let's say you have a user fee for a service, and it's like, okay, you know, I own this lawnmower, right? And I'll let you use it if you pay me, you know, a user fee for every hour. Okay, that's 
one thing, but with a compounding interest, you, you can eventually get to the point where the interest you owe, if you're particularly bad with money, is greater than the principal itself. And, and then you're, you're, you're really just kind of screwed at that point. And it seems to privilege people that are really good at playing that game over and above everyone else. Because I think the question that needs to be asked, is it, is it desirable that, uh, given the Pareto distribution of skills that people have over all, a wide area of activities and intellectual, uh, adventure, you know, pastimes, should we privilege this one? Which by definition, most people aren't going to be that talented at because it's a distribution of skills over a wide area such that they get to break the game in a way that a chess player can't or a, a musician can't. Let me clarify. You, you were saying that in terms of um, compound interest, you can borrow a certain amount of money and then you can end up basically paying back more than double the uh, value of the money that you borrow to begin with. And that was predominantly the problem or am I misunderstanding you well yeah it, the predominant the predominant nature of the problem is that it, it, it just becomes this increasing sink in a way that a user fee isn't it's a user fee is one and done and you either can afford it or you can't oh so um, your argument is the fact that the interest can just go in perpetuity and there's no sort of fixed limits to the amount that it can go at so it's not the compounding yeah. per se but you could say compound for three years and it stops and that would be relatively benign in compared well, with that, that would, in that perpetuity would be, interest. That would be relatively better, yeah. And then the question is, okay. given given the nature and logic of interest as such, can we hold it there? Because, you know, for example, the Catholics and the Calvinists tried to hold it there, but then it just kept on going. But isn't – the question then is, is, is that because of the nature of interest per se, or is that more of a case of um, – or, or is that the case of some historical contingent factors? Because, I mean, you, you could make the case that um, the fact that you haven't paid off your debt means effectively, sorry, you haven't paid off the principal yet means that you're basically keeping uh, keeping the asset for uh, a continuous time period in the same way that you're basically not giving the lawnmower back. Well, I, I guess what I'd say with, with the idea of, of usury here is that it, it creates this... It, 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 okay, it, it, it preys upon people that can't make good business decisions. You, you might be holding back the, the, the principal, or, or maybe you just miscalculated future expected incomes. Well, actually, the, the, let's shift it to that, because that's actually, I think, where the real issue is. A, a lot of times you, you borrow money based on expected future profitability. And that, that's very dangerous, because Often, a lot of times that you can't actually have enough information to reasonably predict that unless, of course, you're sheltered from the consequences of those actions, like many of the, the legally privileged companies. So what it does is it just it just ends up hurting people unnecessarily because the the risks are often too high for even very intelligent people to properly account for. But isn't that the same as like borrowing an oven because you think you can take this and make pizza and sell it to people? And you borrow it for a certain fee, thinking that well, you'll be able to sell these pizzas for more than the cost of the uh, the pizza oven. But in fact, you turn out that you know you've made a loss. I, 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 I'm failing to see how that's categorically different from the situation of interest. Well, 
ultimately the difference is in the former case, the loss is fixed at some predetermined rate, which everybody seems to agree on what that would be. Whereas with interest, the loss never seems to end. Okay, so you, if you could just have a situation whereby you agree that at this point, this is the. So if you had an agreement whereby instead of it saying, oh, you pay like one and a half percent, it's like, no, no, this is the term of the contract, it's 30 years, and after 30 years, you owe this amount of money. And, it's, and, and that amount is, that's how much you owe. And if that was the case, then there's not a huge issue. Yeah, that's a, that's a very different situation. I think that's actually how uh, Islamic law deals with a lot of that. You're, Islamic. Let me, let me cut it again. Your point about the system being against people who are bad at making certain decisions, I think, goes into the problem of uh, we we sort of me and Swithin sort of touched this on an older episode. You know, Swithin had this idea of uh, Swithin was talking about benevolent slavery. I think is Aristotle right about slavery? One of my one of my comments I made against this was that uh, a benevolent slaveholder at times outside of maybe parents outside of parents is probably a hard a hard problem to uh hard problem to address here so your your point is saying that you know well people people take out these sort of you know these loans and all this finance stuff um it, it's 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 problematic and people have credit card debts that are just basically ruinous they'll just buy stuff on credit card debts which is like 18% interest which accumulates um now my opinion those people are just making stupid decisions here and I think a lot of student loan decisions are also kind of uh, uh, stupid as well. I mean, you, at some point, at some point, isn't 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 the person not to go full Jordan Peterson here, but isn't it the sort of the person who did the risk? Um, it, aren't they um, in some ways, quote unquote, responsible um, for making that bad decision here? Uh, this is the tell of here. This is where disincentives skin in the game. You know, uh, why would you pursue a good action if you don't if you, 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 you need carrots and you need sticks here? Now, of course, I'm all for bankruptcy. And I actually I, I go full Ron Paul. I think Lehman Brothers and those places should go bankrupt um, in, in, in Kapistan. They would. Um, you know, that's actually one way you said that you know, the Goldilocks version, uh, you know, some of the defenses of like against Bismarck and FDR. FDR is sort of the Americanized version of Bismarck, is that what FDR functionally did was just save the banks. He, he's not, you know, that's what actually he actually did. Uh, he didn't save the, you know, he didn't save the common worker in the field or at the factory. He just sort of bailed out the banks here, which kept the credit market under control. Again, Swithin would probably know much more about this history than I do. A professional economist here, but the complexity point is a problem here. That seems to be the best example against usury. Just don't deal with banks. Just deal with hard currency here. But then you don't have access to certain services that you might have. So the argument in favor of interest is I can buy ten acres of land instead of five acres of land, um, and I, you know, I can do more. Uh, I do more than what my current level of money has. Uh, now, why that money should Move action is a good question, but I, I I still don't see why interest doesn't have some positive benefits there. Uh, and as far as people making bad decisions, my second question is here is, don't you sort of just have to let them, so to speak, fry or at least some amounts? Uh, you know, that's that's something that's that's an issue often brought up with the student loan debt thing here, where people have like hundred thousand interest. Well, why did you go to a private school that costs forty thousand dollars a year? When you could have gone to a public one that costs fifteen thousand dollars a year, 
you know, that, that, that was your choice. That, that would be my, that would be my sort of counter against that. Uh, uh. Yeah. So I guess I'll pick up at where you left off. Firstly, the first thing I'd say is, okay, when we talk about getting into debt and all these financial instruments, let's go back to 2008 and we look at all, all that's actually in place. In fact, all, all the financial instruments, all the financial legalese was so vast that even, you know, there was no one mind brilliant enough to comprehend all of it. You had to have teams of legal analysts to comprehend this whole tangled web. And so when you have somebody who's, you know, maybe 100 IQ points or lower, who's getting loans, there's there's no way that they're even going to be able to conceptually understand what they're actually committing to. Even even the most intelligent individual is going to have a hard time. So to what well, extent – Sorry, the temptation is there. Like you get a free car or a subprime house, you get – the temptation is so there, it's it's not even there. Credit cards are the same way. Like I know people right. who don't – I know some of my grandparents used to not have credit cards for years because they just didn't really – they were suspicious of them. I think that that suspicion, the lower classes should have that suspicion. I think they'd be very pertinent to sort of say just use all cash because you can't spend more than whatever you have in your wallet. Right. But then this just begs the question, though, right? So why why, why do these things exist? I mean, we can envision a scenario where, you know, somebody uh, decides on a road where there's a turn and it's not very – uh, observable by people coming down the road, just decides to dig a bunch of holes. And then, you know, people start to fall in and get hurt. And it's like, well, you should have been paying attention. You should have watched out for those holes. Yes, that's true, but why are you allowed to be digging holes on the side of the road? He was homesteading it. That's why. <laughs> well, well, that might be a libertarian <laughs> answer. But hold on, though. Unless he's the guy that owns the private road, then that's trespass. Well, then, well... Well, interesting. If you get into Hopper, Hopper in detail in some of his arguments, he actually does recognise easements, um, and he does do that. Um, but uh, um, so what, I, do, what I, do you, so what do you make of the disincentive problem here? Because the end, you know, the payoff is for the saver is to get the, you know, the game, the system, and create this giant fortune through compound interest. But there's also a disincentive problem here, where you do have bad. And this is the micro scale and the macro scale. You should have the vanilla example of like uh, of like student you know debt so to speak, um, but a lot of it, some of them some of them people actually did go out and for example make lots of money as a lawyer, uh, uh, so like you know, it's, you know should they get checks? That, some of the sort of bailout programs uh, and these things are I think are always sort of dubious here, but there is some immediate disincentive. What, how would you break me Todd and I's disagreement somewhat over this? I mean, the example of don't build things on the side of the road. I agree, but um, sometimes you could also say, well, don't dig anything, or you know, you get into sort of the counter soup, where you get the counter area where uh, you know, so the, the 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 sort of the class action lawsuits that are often labeled against McDonald's or other corporations for having basically, you know, that's where you have to have railings and stuff all around things and. Uh, the protective nets everywhere and things like that. You know, uh, you seem to get in the other problem where, you know, agree you shouldn't be diddling holes purposely. But on the other hand, um, you shouldn't also be, you, know, you should also have to have some idea to look out for yourselves and pick at least good decisions. There's always going to be charlatans 
and loan sharks out there. Um, um, I do agree these loan sharks have lots of good advertising with them, but you still sort of have to say no, no thanks to the loan sharks. If you can, of course. What do you make of that, Swithin? Well, the boring answer is, uh, oh, uh, custom and norms and what's expected and various things like that, which I think is, um, to um, a large extent, true. I mean, you can talk about, you know, like reasonable man defences and, you know, would a reasonable man expect that there'd be whole downside of the road? Well, it depends whether there's always whole side downside of the road, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think you're going to get to that position. But I, I think the major issue here is, um, irrespective of the complexity of anything, you're always going to have effectively stupid people. And people are going to get in over their heads in things that they don't understand. Um, the thing is, well, how do you deal with that? Um, well, I think, well, for one thing, you need uh, general rules of thumb, which I think you, you rightly said, you know, if you're in the working class or whatever, just don't get loans uh, and stuff like that. I think that's definitely... Just a simple rules of thumb to keep out of it. And then for people who are sort of um, more intelligent to, you know, provide services for uh, these people. I mean, there's this reason, the reason why you couldn't have some like charitable organizations which kind of try to um, advise people on financial decisions and stuff. I mean, they exist currently. And I mean, I'd expect they'd exist more. And then we skipped over this a little bit. Bit. But I do think, especially on the, on the finance thing, if you have a deflationary economy, that is, the, 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 there is price deflation, the benefit of borrowing goes down significantly. I mean, if you were to have like the classic sort of 100% reserve gold standard of Rothbard or George Reisman, I mean, the people who are only – the amount of consumer credit would, I think, be very small because how is the consumer going to outbid – the entrepreneur for these um, for these funds for investment. It would just seem odd that the consumer. Now it's possible, but I think it highly unlikely that in cases that the consumer would be able to outbid and pay a great amount of interest than the entrepreneur would, who is actually going to borrow this money to invest to get a great return. I just don't even, just don't see that happening. Um, so the thing we have to go recognize is that people are going to make errors and there's people who are going to be stupid. Uh, the question is, how do we best deal with that? Do you have it whereby you have this sort of central, or not to a central authority, but a particular authority which can kind of control uh, more what is taking place in a more sort of um, practical interventionist way? Or is it a case of, well, you take responsibility for what you do and other people who are, you know these areas better, provide sort of general guidance and sort of natural elites or whatever rise up to try and guide these people away from, you know, as ever, there's going to be stupid people and there's going to be bad people. There's going to be bad people going to try and screw people over. I mean, whatever society you're in, there's, those people are going to exist and they're going to use whatever uh, hole there is in the system to try and exploit people. Um, so uh, that would be my my response to your question. Um, any any final thoughts, anybody? Well, I think we've, we've run uh, a decent amount of time now. So a- any comments on what I've just said, on the uh, problems as a whole, or anything else pertaining to the uh, inequality discussion? I think as to what you just said, Swithin, the problem is when you make any given choice set so high risk, high reward, and so uncertain, then people just don't act. So case in point, you know, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, both in and out of the church, you know, we've heard a lot about marriages aren't happening. 
you know, men and women are both deferring marriage. Well, in large part, it's because uh, any any choice is is so uh, heavily weighted and considered so committal, and also there's so much ambiguity in the whole thing that people just decide in their rational self-interest it's just safer not to act because to act at all is just too risky. There's, there's not enough information and everything is just too high risk. And and when you have this sort of like hyper indebted society, it, it turns into that. It, it turns into this where it's like, well, okay, you know, it's just too, it's just too high risk to do anything and it's too uncertain. So we're just not going to do anything. We're not going to, we're not going to engage at all. And I, I guess, uh, as a final thought, just to wrap it all up, the, the ultimate danger of wealth inequality is that because money is seen as a, whether it's paper dollar notes or gold of yesteryear, as a universal way to open all doors, you can just have one guy hire a bunch of mercenaries and take over and subvert whatever system he's in. You know, throughout history, we don't really see, you know, game masters, whether it's backgammon or chess or musicians or poets doing the same. Tim. As far as the the comment about uh, people inacting, I would say that there's sort of, I think there's Aridens, some donkey who's equally halfway from water and hay, or I forget the exact thing. Uh, I, I would say the non-action point again. I, I one of the problems I see is a lot of the do-gooders out there who who uh, who want to fix wealth inequality seem to make it seem to make it worse off. Um, so so I think any sort of any sort of attempt to get away from it you should have to look beyond the sort of you know do-gooders and i also think that one option is to go full cl- abolish all classes here forget the middle class here uh, so i i don't really have a solution uh to fix these things but i think if we're going to get a solution we should have to have a, a appropriate diagnosis of the problems away from it and i i, I do i do again and stress that i do think there are disincentive effects here um, you know, we might just be a, in a consolidation period. Um, I think, you know, you could just argue this is a consolidation period, which is inaction is a, just the sort of the, um, way it is. Swithin, do you have any comments? I would say that wealth inequality is always going to exist. The question is, uh, how do you amass the wealth inequality? Is it the people amass, uh, the wealth because, um, they're virtuous and provide good service to people or do they have legal privilege? Um, I would also say, even if you say that they initially are virtuous, they could then become vicious, which is possibly true. Well, it is possibly true. Um, the question is, well, how, how do you set up a system in such a way that will prevent any individual from overturning it? Um, I, I, that would seem to be quite difficult. It's going to depend on social norms and, and a whole host of different things and how sort of um, tight knit the community is with ideals and various things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, but my, my, my caution would be um, whilst trying to stop people from um, engaging in actions that would be otherwise, which would probably be detrimental themselves, that you don't then create another means of subversion and control uh, would be uh, my final uh, comment on that. And I'd just like to thank Todd for joining us again, and thank you for everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, and subscribe to us on Podbean on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings, and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. 